Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, go ahead and open them to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, and today we're going to be in verses 14 through 24. Genesis 3, verses 14 through 24. And the title of this sermon is The Gospel in Paradise Lost. Today we come to the end of Genesis 3, which Genesis 3 is one of the saddest chapters in Scripture, but also may be one of the most important. In fact, I think that this text that we're going to go through is one of the most important texts in all of Scripture. And I say this for a couple of reasons. First, Genesis chapter 3 tells us why things are the way they are all around us every day. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I'm reading Genesis chapter 1, it's pretty hard to imagine. Everything, and I do mean everything, in Genesis chapter 1 is perfect. No sin, no strife, no sickness, no suffering. Life with God is completely unhindered. It's literally paradise. That can be hard to imagine because none of us have ever lived there. But Genesis 3, on the other hand, we know that world, a world where God is questioned and rejected, a world of victimhood and blame shifting, a world of hiding from God and brokenness. We know that world all too well. And Genesis 3 explains where all of that came from. Second, Genesis 3, most importantly, and I think you'll see this this morning, Genesis 3 tells us the way forward. It's like a program that you get when you walk into a play or a movie theater or something. It tells you what's next and what's going to happen. That's what we'll see in today's text. And while this whole chapter, Genesis 3, is known rightly as the fall, I want us to see that even in the midst of judgment, there are beautiful rays of glorious grace and good news. So with that, let's dive in. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 24. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat 
eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Just to remind us and set the scene here. In verses 1 through 7 of this chapter, we saw Satan twist and distort God's word to Eve. We saw Eve and Adam take the bait and disobey God. We saw them both naked and, unashamed, naked and ashamed, spiritually exposed, riddled with guilt. We saw them last week attempt to hide from God. And God compassionately seek them out. We saw Adam and Eve try to put responsibility anywhere but themselves. Now, let's see God's response to all of that. Verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go. And dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, I want you to notice how different this is from how God approached Adam and Eve in the previous verses. With Adam and Eve, God approaches with questions. But here, he goes straight into a curse. By the way, as we move through this text, you'll see that Satan is the only individual that's cursed here. God will curse the ground in verse 17, but he won't directly curse Adam and Eve. God doesn't question the serpent. He just curses him. God doesn't negotiate with terrorists. Further, God doesn't provide a way out for Satan. Do you see that? There's no hope of mercy or grace or salvation for him. Mike reminded us of this a couple weeks ago. The, the truth is that God doesn't owe anyone the hope of mercy, grace, or salvation. And his condemnation of Satan here reminds us of this. Even in the promises for the new heavens and the new earth in Isaiah 65, we're told this. Isaiah 65, verse 25. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. It's amazing. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. But yet, dust shall be the serpent's food. Nothing's going to change for him. His condemnation and his curse is forever. He will eat the dust. Eating the dust is a symbol of hopeless humiliation throughout the scriptures. 
Psalm 72, verse 9, that we read and prayed just now. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. Micah chapter 7, verses 16 and 17. The nation shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. Verse 17. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. I want you to see here the sovereignty and the power of God Almighty. This world isn't just a a dualistic contest between equally powerful forces of good and evil. Not at all. The Lord God, in his just judgment, causes Satan to bite the dust. And there's nothing that Satan can do about it. By the way, this, this whole section in Scripture is what's known as a chiasm. We saw several of these as we studied the book of Mark. It's where an author makes a theme sandwich to highlight what's in the direct middle. So picture bread and bread, cheese and cheese, and then right in the middle, the meat. And that's what we have here. After Adam and Eve sin, God talks to Adam, bread. Then to Eve, cheese. Then, Satan, meat. In verse 16, he'll address Eve again, cheese. And then Adam, in verse 17, bread. Moses is trying to highlight something very important here in verses 14 and 15. Specifically, verse 15. That he doesn't want us to miss. The meat. So what is it? Look again at verse 15. This verse could be a whole sermon by itself, to be honest. God says this to Satan, verse 15. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. These are some of the most important words in all of Scripture. This is a judgment passage. But more importantly, it's a salvation passage. In fact, theologians throughout history have called this verse the Proto-Evangelium, or the first gospel. The first gospel. Two quick truths that I don't want you to miss here before we look at this verse more in depth. Number one, the Old Testament is cyclical. The Old Testament is cyclical. Uh, Even though the characters will change, the same cycle plays itself out over and over and over and over again. And here's the cycle. Sin, judgment, hope. Sin, judgment, hope. Sin, judgment, hope. On and on and on again. Over and over and over again. So look for it as you read your Old Testament. Sin, judgment, hope. This text is a microcosm of that. Adam and Eve sinned. There's clear judgment in this text. Because God is a God of justice and righteousness. But woven throughout 
is an enormous amount of hope. So sin, judgment, hope. Second, many biblical theologians see that, um, that the major theme of the entire Bible is this. God's glory in salvation through judgment. God's glory in salvation through judgment. They see that as the major theme of the entire Bible. So we're going to see how that works itself out in this verse. God's glory in salvation through judgment. Jim Hamilton comments that salvation and judgment actually balance one another out in Scripture. He says this. He says, The reality of judgment should keep us from thinking of God in purely sentimental terms, as though he were a grandfatherly buddy who just lets things go. The reality of salvation should likewise keep us from thinking of God as merely a terrifying, vengeful judge. Those who flee to him will be saved, but those who do not fear him will be judged. Much, much more could be said about this. But Hamilton's argument, and I think he's right, is that this is the core thread of biblical theology that runs through every single book of Scripture. It's the center of biblical theology. God's glory in salvation through judgment. And right here at the beginning of Genesis, in the heart of this chiasm sandwich, we see it so clear. This is a judgment text, but it's a glorious, glorious promise of salvation for God's people. So let's look at it closely. Verse 15 again. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. There's three different distinct layers to this verse. Number one, Eve specifically. Remember what happened in verses 1 through 7? Eve was deceived by Satan. She fell into his trap. She didn't have enmity with him enough to tell him to get lost. So here, in God's grace, he's, he's driving a wedge between Eve and the serpent, between the woman and the enemy of her soul. But it doesn't stop there. This, this good news begins with Eve, but it spreads even farther. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring. The literal word here for offspring is seed. Between your, Satan's seed, and her, Eve's seed. So does this mean that Satan will be at war with all of humankind? No. We'll quickly learn in Genesis 4, verse 8, that not all the children or descendants of Eve will be of the good seed. Cain, who's birthed by Eve, will kill his brother Abel. As we move through Genesis, we'll see two distinct lines drawn with these seeds and how they diverge. 1 John chapter 3, verse 12 says, We should not be like Cain, 
who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Do you see that? Cain, First John is telling us, Cain was a seed of the serpent. By the time we get to the New Testament, Jesus says this to those who are opposing him. So these are people who are opposing Jesus. And this is what he says, John 8, verse 44. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. In other words, the seeds of the devil are those who reject Jesus and his kingdom. On the other hand, the seeds of Eve will be those who trust in God and his promises. So God's saying, there's going to be enmity between these two parties. The people of God won't be cozy with the people of Satan. But here's the great news. This cosmic battle that's set up here in the garden, this cosmic battle won't end in a stalemate. Look at the third line of verse 15. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. Do you see the pronouns there? He, singular. God is making a promise here that a singular seed, he, will one day win the battle as a representative of the offspring of Eve. That he is Christ. Look what Paul writes in Galatians 3, verse 16. Galatians 3, 16, Paul writes, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, singular. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Let me back up a couple of verses to show you the context that Paul says that in. Galatians 3, verses 13 and 14. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Do you see that? Adam and Eve disobeyed the covenant of works, which is spelled out in Genesis 2, thus placing themselves under the curse of the law. And Paul's saying, Christ redeemed us from that curse by taking it on himself and then applying blessing on us through faith. And then he proceeds to tell us that Christ is the seed. Okay, back to Genesis 3.15. He, Jesus, shall bruise your head. And you, Satan, shall bruise his heel. Do you see what's being said? Satan is going to cripple Jesus... But Jesus is going to crush Satan. On the cross, Jesus would suffer and die. He'd be buried. His heel would be bruised. 
But then, he rose from the grave, defeating sin and Satan and death itself. Headshot. Genesis 3.15 tells us that Satan may have temporarily won round one in the garden against the first Adam. But the second Adam, Jesus Christ, he's going to be victorious. He's going to crush Satan's head. And here's the deal. Those who have union with Christ, those who are unified with him, those who have repented and believed, those who are the broader offspring of Eve, they too will crush Satan's head because of their union with Christ. Look at Romans chapter 16, verses 17 through 20. This is amazing. Romans 16, verses 17 through 20. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but rather their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Sounds like seeds of Satan, right? For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be, uh, be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. And here it is, verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You see that? Our union with Christ is a big deal. He crushes Satan's head. And through him, we crush Satan's head. Genesis 3, 14 and 15 is a judgment text. But do you see the good news in it? It's a promise that Satan won't win in the end. It's a promise of a victor who will win on behalf of the seeds of Eve. Sin, judgment, hope. God's glory in salvation through judgment. This is a promise of where the rest of the story of Scripture is headed. Satan's going to eat the dust and then take a dirt nap. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Let's keep going. Verse 16. God moves on from cursing the serpent. He moves on to the woman. Verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The peace and pleasure and perfection of Eden is over, isn't it? This is what sin does. It brings about pain and strife. And look at what God zeroes in on. Childbearing and marriage. Sin brought brokenness to the core of who God created Eve to be. First, Childbearing. 
I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And understand this. Yes, there's physical pain in the moment of birthing a child. So I'm told. But this is much, much more extensive than that. This word for pain includes not just physical pain. It does include that, but it's not limited to that. It includes emotional pain, too. God's saying, now that that sin's here unraveling the world, bringing children into this world is going to be hard. It's going to be physically and emotionally painful. Childbearing. Second, marriage. It says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The New American Standard translates it more literally. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. I believe the ESV has the thrust of this text right here, showing that this desire that she'll have for her husband isn't a positive thing. Sometimes we think of desire as a positive thing. I don't think it is here. It's contrary to him. And here's why I think the ESV is right. Flip over to Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. Genesis 4, verse 7. God is talking to Cain here, Abel's brother. And he says this. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, and here it is. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. But you must rule over it. You see that? Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. It's the exact same construction we have here in chapter 3, verse 16. And here, in chapter 4, this desire, the desire of sin, is to master Cain. It's contrary to him. And he must rule over it. Back to Genesis 3. Look at this again. He says this to Eve. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. What's God saying? Well, there's two options. Option one, God's saying, you, Eve, are going to try to sinfully master your husband. Your natural desire will be to dominate him. But he will rightfully take his place as head and lead you, as he was commanded to do in Genesis 1 and 2. That's one option for what he will rule over you means. Option two is this. You, Eve, are going to try to sinfully master your husband, but he will sinfully, crushingly rule over you in a harsh way. Both of these options are potentially here. Because of sin, we've seen some men throughout history be abusive tyrants. And here's the deal. With either of these two options, what's being said is clear. Marriage is now war. 
Sin has taken the peaceful, harmonious, perfect garden relationship and introduced brokenness. And every single marriage from that point forward would be affected. One commentator says, marriage becomes a battlefield over who will control the relationship. That's the sinfulness of sin on display. Side note, if you are in an abusive marriage, we want you to know that you can come and talk to us as elders. It's a safe place. We'll take you seriously. You'll be heard and cared for and protected. Wives, because of Genesis 3, you have a sin nature. Husbands, because of Genesis 3, you also have a sin nature. And we have to know that coming into marriage. You're both sinners when you say, I do. Which means that we have to lean into the gospel of Jesus. We need to repent and forgive a lot. The war has already been won by Jesus, the snake crusher. Remember 315. So in light of that, we win the battles by growing in Christ, becoming more and more like him. And quickly, I want us to see the grace, even in this judgment for the woman. Childbearing and marriage are great things, but they're not ultimate things. In this judgment, God's going to make sure that there's no ultimate peace or satisfaction in childbearing or marriage. It'll force you as a woman to find your ultimate peace and satisfaction somewhere else in Christ. Childbearing and marriage are hard. Let me remind you this morning of Jesus' words. Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So as you find childbearing and marriage difficult, come to Jesus and rest. Now, on to the man. Verses 17 through 19. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Men, very important here. I want you to notice that, that it isn't work itself that's cursed here, but it's the ground. Work, according to Genesis 2.15, is a good thing and is a gift from God. But what's happening here is that work's going to be hard. And it will never ultimately satisfy. Ecclesiastes 1 verses 3 through 4 
It says, what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The very next chapter goes on to say this, Ecclesiastes 2, 10 and 11. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had extended in doing it. And behold, it was all vanity and a striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Do you see that? That's the result of the fall. Work's going to be hard and not ultimately satisfying. Vanity. A striving after the wind. How many of us as men would do well to realize that? As men, it's so easy to find your identity in your job, isn't it? To spend the most and the best of your time working. Now, Paul does write this to Timothy. 1 Timothy 5.8. He says, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household. He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So as men, we are called to provide for our families, but we're not called to find our identities in our work. That's a striving after the wind, according to Ecclesiastes. And the work we do because of the fall will involve pain and frustration. Again, mentally try to go back to pre-fall Eden here. Marriage was peaceful and pleasurable. Work was peaceful and pleasurable. All of that is now broken because of sin. That's what the Bible wants you to see. What Adam and Eve thought would lead to freedom actually led to pain bondage. Sin never delivers what it promises. Not then, and not now. But again, I want you to see that this judgment upon the man is also laced with grace. As with woman, man will never be satisfied completely by the work of his hands, but only by Christ alone. This is God's gift amidst judgment. Let's keep going. Here's a turning point in our text, verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. If we're not careful, we can simply read past this verse and think that it's really not that important to the storyline. But don't miss this. This is Adam believing in the promises of God. Specifically, the promise that was made in Genesis 3.15. What did Adam call his wife here? Eve. Eve means life or life giver. He heard God promise that one of her seeds would crush Satan's head. And then he turns and calls her the mother of life. Even after the sentence of death. He has faith in God here. 
This is a shout of hope. In the midst of judgment, and in the middle of a somewhat dire outlook, Adam believes God after closely listening to God's word. Immediately following this, look at what God does. Adam expresses faith through naming Eve. And then verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Remember what happened at the front of this chapter? Verse 7. Then the eyes of both, meaning Adam and Eve, the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Adam and Eve sin. Their eyes are opened to their shame and to their guilt. They respond by trying to cover themselves up, but only with fig leaves. We learn that's inadequate. But here, in our text today, God adequately covers them, not with leaves, but with garments of skins. This is a completely gracious act of God and not a work of man. Psalm 32 verse 1 says this. It says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. There's so much here. First, see that for sinners to be properly covered up, there had to be the shedding of blood. It wasn't cheap, like fig leaves, but costly. Marcus Dodds, the distinguished 19th century Scottish theologian, he writes this. He said, The clothing which God provided was in itself different from what man had thought of. Adam took leaves from an inanimate, unfeeling tree. God deprived an animal of life, that the shame of his creature might be relieved. This was the last thing Adam would have thought of doing. To us, life is cheap and death familiar. But Adam recognized death as the punishment of sin. Death was to early man a sign of God's anger. And he had to learn that sin could be covered up not by a bunch of leaves snatched from a bush as he passed by and it would grow again next year, but only by pain and blood. Reading that quote reminded me of another quote as I was studying this week. This guy, Richard Niebuhr, he's describing modern-day theological liberals. And he says this. He's criticizing the liberal social gospel as a message of God without wrath, bringing men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a or cross with, without a Christ, a Christ without a cross. Message of God without wrath, bringing men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Do you see how wrong that is? The Bible here, from the very beginning, is showing us that sin must be dealt with. And that for it to be dealt with, there must be suffering and loss of life. God kills an animal to cover Adam and Eve. Second, this is atonement language. 
Every priest reading this, Genesis chapter 3, would have known this. Leviticus chapter 7, verse 8, it says, And the priest who offers any man's burnt offering shall have for himself the skin of the burnt offering that he has offered. So this covering was costly. It was atonement language for sin being covered. But it's also something more. Third, throughout Scripture, this idea of covering also carries with it the idea of righteousness. Righteousness. Zechariah 3, 4. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Tune in here. This is one of the most important doctrines that we as Christians believe. It's the doctrine of double imputation. And here's what that word means, double imputation. When we repent of our sins and believe in Christ, our sin gets imputed or credited to Christ. He takes our filthy garments and pays the penalty for them by dying on the cross. Costly atonement for sin. And here's the double part of double imputation. Not only is, is our sin imputed to Christ, but his righteousness is imputed to us. We wear his righteousness like a garment that covers us. In Matthew chapter 22, there's the parable of the wedding feast, where the requirement to get in is a wedding garment. The only way in is being covered by the righteousness of Christ who was perfect in every way. He never sinned like Adam and Eve in the garden. Then we read in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For our sake, he, meaning God the Father, for our sake, he made him, meaning Jesus the Son, made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Double imputation. Jesus gets our sin. We get his righteousness as a garment that, that covers our shame and our guilt. It's unreal and undeserved. There's nothing you can do to earn that. You can only accept it as the greatest gift in the entire universe. No matter what you've done, no matter how much shame and guilt you have, you can be covered by God through Christ's death on the cross. Now, as we near the end of our text, I want to show you two more little gospel nuggets of truth. Verses 22 and 23. Moses writes this. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden 
to work the ground from which he was taken. Do you see that? Again, this is a judgment. They're being driven out of the garden. But again, this is God's grace. We've seen the amount of brokenness and suffering and sin that's brought into the world. Can you imagine if that sin and suffering went on infinitely on this earth with no death? It'd be eternal suffering with no end. God is keeping us from that by barring the way to the tree of life. Even more, Sidney Gradonis comments, he says, Can you imagine what a disaster it would be if sinful human beings, like the ancient murderer Lamech, or the modern murderer Hitler, would live forever? No matter how great the reign of terror of evil people, we know that they will all die, and their evil reign will come to an end. Praise God for that. This action of God barring man from the tree of eternal life is gracious. Finally, look at verse 24. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. There's no human way back in. You couldn't do it if you wanted to. But do you remember what the garden represents? The place where God and man meet. The tabernacle would later be a recreation of this garden temple. And in that temple, do you know what blocked the way into the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God was? Let's read Exodus 26, verse 1. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with a cherubim skillfully worked into them. This was a reminder to them every time they went into the temple that because of sin, you can't go in. But let me remind you what happened when Jesus died on the cross and breathed his last. Matthew 27, verses 50 and 51. Jesus is is on the cross, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple, that exact curtain that we just read about in Exodus, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Do you see that? Jesus' costly, atoning, sacrificial death on the cross made a way for ruined sinners to re-enter into the presence of God. The snake crusher prevailed. He rose from the grave three days later. And Satan's victory had now become his defeat. Because of this, we read in Revelation 20 verse 10, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Two chapters later, John writes this, Revelation 22, verses 1 through 3 and verse 14. 
Then the angel, of the angel showed me a river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Sin, judgment, glorious hope. Jesus has defeated sin and Satan and death to offer us his righteous garment and eternal life. The curtain was torn in two, and we can have relationship with God once again. Praise God for this truth. Let's pray.